should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now, here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome. Happy Friday. It's Friday, September 15th, halfway through the ninth month of the year. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. The Michelle Miao Show is your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. Today is Friday, and so we play the week-to-week political roundtable talk with John Zipper of Commonwealth Club. Enjoy the program. Hello, I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's week-to-week political roundtable. You can find out more about week-to-week, including how to attend a program when you're in the Bay Area, and about all of our 450 programs a year by going to commonwealthclub.org. Now, let's join today's program. Hi, everybody, and welcome to tonight's program with Inform at the Commonwealth Club. Uh, I'm Christina Rizga, education correspondent at Mother Jones and uh, author of the book Mission High. It is my pleasure to welcome and introduce Nicole Hannah-Jones, one of the greatest and most powerful voices of my generation to the Bay Area. Uh, As many of us in this audience know, Nicole has dedicated her professional life to investigating policies that have created and continue to maintain racial segregation in our neighborhoods and our schools. Her 2014 ProPublica investigation showed us how our schools today are more segregated by race and class than they were shortly after Brown um, v. Board of Education was passed, which declared Uh, segregated schools unconstitutional. And I remember very vividly when Nicole's story came out, how it pushed through the issue of segregation and economic inequality into mainstream conversations, and it changed journalism, and it changed conversations about school reforms. In her This American Life story about Michael Brown's high school in 2015, Nicole took to task uh, then-Secretary of Education Arne Duncan um, and criticized the Obama administration for not paying enough attention to school integration, a policy that we know, uh, when implemented well, works better than any other in cutting the achievement gap, reducing racial disparities, and income inequality. Shortly after that story, Secretary John King Jr. announced giving out $120 million for voluntary integration programs. This year, Nicole won the National Magazine Award for her moving and very personal New York Times Magazine story, Choosing a School for My Daughter in a Segregated City, and we'll definitely be talking about that. Nicole also helped found the Ida B. Wells Society, which works to bring more investigative reporters of of color into our newsrooms. And she's writing a book about school segregation titled The Problem We All Live With. I personally have learned so much from Nicole's journalism, uh, the historic context that she brings to every single story she writes, and her leadership and her courage. Um, And it is 
such an honor for me to be able to talk to Nicole today about what's going on in our country and what role public schools play in that. But before we dig into all of it, please help me give Nicole a welcoming round of applause. So I thought I would start with Charlottesville because so many Americans, I think, this week are still trying to make sense of it all and trying to figure out what all of it means you know, for the future of our country. Uh, emboldened by Trump, uh, white supremacists are coming, you know, they're on national tour and they're coming to San Francisco and Berkeley uh, this weekend. Um, and since that horrifying day on August 12, uh, much of the outrage has been focused on condemning the violence um, and, and the moral bankruptcy of President Trump for you know, placing equal blame on so-called, quote unquote, many sides. Um, but in the midst of this huge push to reject violence, um, you raised some really powerful points on Twitter, because you're supposed to work on a draft, but you, <laughs> you posted many essays on Twitter. And you said, we shouldn't be lulled by the president. Yeah. <laughs> Go straight to Twitter. <laughs> we shouldn't be lulled by people coming out against Charlottesville violence. Condemning killing is the easiest thing. It does not take courage. It doesn't mean you support equality and civil rights. And, and then you argued that the most harmful forms of racism are actually spread in much more sinister ways than the neo-Nazi and KKK groups. Can you tell us a little bit more about that point? Yeah, I think... Um I mean, clearly, we should condemn what happened in Charlottesville. But I think, um, like I said in the tweet, that is the easiest thing to do. What is hard is the segregation and the inequality that we all sustain in our communities every day. So I live in New York City, probably one of the most liberal, progressive cities in the world. And it's the third most segregated residentially and has the most segregated large school system in the country. So. Um, I just don't get super excited when people can say that it's wrong to like hold torches and you know say the Jews will not replace us. Like, obviously, um, <laughs> I think I think everyone can feel good about that, and everyone can feel like they're on the right side of justice when they do that. And then you know they go back home and fight to keep their daughters and their sons out of schools like my daughter goes to, um, or they fight to keep affordable housing out of their communities. Um, they fight against affirmative action. They fight against justice programs. And I'm not talking about Southerners in red states. I'm not talking about conservatives. I'm talking about progressive people. And um, most of my work is actually just trying to get progressive people to live their values. I'm not even dealing with people who don't actually agree with um, the things that I write about. Yeah, and that's why you spent your career documenting is just like all these different systems, you know, this sort of invisible machinery through which all of this, all of this um, happens. And um, I remember in your um, 2014 uh, ProPublica story, um, Segregation Now, one of the most powerful points that really stayed with me um, for a long time and informed a lot of journalism that I was doing you were making this point that when Brown v. Board was passed, um, Justice Warren wasn't, you know, 
using it to wasn't arguing for it and saying that you know we need to have integration because that's the only way we can have equitable resources for these schools even though that's true and that 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 comes as a result of that and as you've you know have said many times in your work you know we've never in our history have had a uh, situation where black, Latino, Native American students were separated from white students and getting the same resources. It's never happened, so that's a big part of it. But you were saying that Justice Warren was making, uh, a, a, it hinged on another idea uh, about the purpose of public education um, that I think you know has slowly faded away. Can you remind us of that? Yeah, so it's interesting because most people, I mean, how many people here have ever read the Brown decision? So that's pretty common. Um, and of course, it was the most important Supreme Court decision of the 20th century, if not ever. Um, but most people have never actually read the decision. And most people think the decision was about unequal resources, and it actually wasn't. And so um, if you read the decision, it doesn't even mention resources at all. And I think our, our um, either intentional or uninformed understanding of Brown is that Brown was about, was about equal resources. And so therefore, as schools have resegregated, as long as we can provide equal resources, it's not really a problem. But what Brown was really about was citizenship and caste. And it was understanding that um, what, what Chief Justice Warren says is that education is probably the most important function of government and that a child who's deprived of a, of a quality education has very little chance of succeeding in life, but also of reaching their full citizenship in this country. And Brown was about undoing caste. It was about understanding that there was a stigma and that, that segregation was not uh, a benign segregation. The segregation was designed to stigmatize black Americans. It was designed to keep black Americans in second class citizenship. And integration was really about black children getting their full citizenship and then being able to become fully American as adults. Um, we have lost sight of that clearly. Uh, I think we don't talk about public education in that way. We talk about public education in terms of how are test scores at a school? What's the curriculum? Brown doesn't mention test scores. Brown doesn't mention an achievement gap. Brown is unconcerned with those things. Um, not that they're not important, but I think, again, we have come to think that if we just can test these schools to death, if we can, we can maintain segregated, high poverty schools, and as long as we're implementing some kind of accountability measures, that it's okay. But that doesn't actually deal with the fundamental issue, which is that the separation of marginalized minorities deprives them of the ability to be full citizens. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why we have, well, that in, or fundamentally, racist country probably. Um, <laughs> but those, that is what has allowed us then to, for the last 30 years, really, stop talking about integration as a necessity at all. And instead to sustain uh, segregated schools and pretend as if we can make them equal. And it's really concerning that it seems like across the political spectrum, the, pu the purpose of public education is only discussed in terms of training skilled workforce for the global economy. And this other much more important uh, goal is, is, is hardly ever mentioned. Yeah, I think in general, um, I mean, we've seen this with a lot of our public institution, is this need to, to marketize and monetize mm -hmm. um, public education by its 
very definition is a socialist institution. It is everyone pays in for everyone to get something for free. And we all are supposed to get the same thing. But now we've in, we have introduced these market-based principles and education is about competition and how can I vie to get my child into uh, the best school and we should have choice. But as we know in a system of capitalism, choice means there will be winners and there will be losers. And as we know in a racialized system of capitalism, who the losers will almost always be. Um, and so we have been seduced by this notion of choice because it makes sense, right? But it actually doesn't. I mean, if you're really understanding that public education was not about, well, let me, let me rephrase. Um, the very best instincts of public education are not about competition, but about ensuring that every child, no matter where they come from, come from gets a basic education that will prepare them to become citizens. Um, of course, it's never actually been true. And part of what my book is arguing, um, it's interesting when we say, what is the purpose of public education? What my book is arguing is that in this country, uh, public education has been designed to solidify caste. And that from the founding of common schools in this country, when black uh, children were prevented, even in the North, from attending public schools that their own parents, taxpayers, or tax dollars were funding um, to when, once they were finally allowed into public schools, they were going to school for half a day, when white children got a full day, uh, less money was spent on black children, sometimes 10 times less money. Um, so I also think that public education was designed uh, to produce exactly what it has, which is to train uh, white children to take the most advantaged jobs and to train black children for their lot in life, which was largely to be the servant class. And you, you, uh, you talk a lot about this um, in this essay that you wrote uh, when Betsy DeVos was going through the confirmation hearings. You wrote an essay called, you know, Have We Lost Sight of the Promise of Public Schools? And you, you, know, you highlighted this massive outpouring uh, uh, of support for traditional public schools and people were um, you know, posting photos of um, doing things in public schools and sharing moving stories about uh, their experiences in public schools and how it saved them and it helped them. Um, but you pointed out that you know this pride was obscuring the larger truth that we began, we began moving away from the public and public education a long time ago, way before Betsy DeVos. Um, when do you think that, what, what are some signs of that that you see you know, in addition to choice and competition so let me first start by saying, I mean, I, I, all of my work are, is about public schools. And I am a huge uh, critic of the way that public schools have damaged um, and disadvantaged, particularly black and Latino children. At the same time, I am a believer in public schools. And I believe that fundamentally, um, if we ever actually live up to the promise of these schools, that they do have the potential to be a great equalizer. That for most children, um, they are never going to be able to afford to go to a private school. And we don't want that, actually. Um, I believe in a common good. Um, so I think that's important. Um, but at the same time, what the choice movement has has thrived upon is this vast inequality in our schools. So when you have um, poor black and Latino neighborhoods where the only option that a parent has is a public school that um, is failing their kids, and I, I don't think all schools with low test scores are failing schools, but I have spent a lot of time in low, um, low income schools that actually are failing their kids. Um, 
And those schools know that those kids are going to come no matter what because they don't have an option. Mm -hmm. And then you have a charter company uh, that will come in and they may not be producing better results, but at least the parent feels like I have a choice. Like you're sending me glossy brochures in the mail. You're courting me. You're wanting me to come in. And so even if that school isn't providing a better education for parents who have no choice and their only choice is a shitty neighborhood school, um, this is, this is what our inability to deal with the inequality in public schools has, has wrought, I think. Um, we started walking away, I mean, you know, everything goes back to race in this country, so we started walking away from a, a firm belief in public schools right after Brown v. Board. And that is when, so in this country, and, and I talk about this in that piece, um, there was large support for public institutions among white Americans when there was legal segregation where black Americans largely did not have access to those public institutions. Once you had Brown v. Board and then the 1964 Civil Rights Act, you start to see a very uh, steep in, uh, decline in public support among white Americans for public institutions, everything from hospitals to parks to schools. Um, and so right after Brown, you had southern states that actually were willing to shut down public education in order to avoid a single black child from entering a school with a white child. And that's where you first start to see um, vouchers. So the voucher movement, uh, its forebear is resistance to Brown, where states like Alabama, states like Virginia, other southern states start to um, close down public schools and offer white parents tuition vouchers to pay for private schools. The choice movement, right? Freedom of choice was an anti-integration program. Um, the tests to get into schools that uh, a lot of progressive communities love now, right? To get into magnet schools, to get into your best schools, those are screen schools. Those screens come out of resistance to Brown. So I think we can see, um, you start to see, as soon as black children are starting to get access to white schools, is when you start to see white support for public schools decline. You know, I think, um, I was thinking how one positive development since Charlottesville, um, you you know, we talk. We always talk a lot about history. Is is you know how much time people have been spending actually talking about history in the last week? Um, history, uh, you know, in debating, you know, history of slavery, history of civil war, who deserves to be honored in public spaces, and this just made me think a lot about how um, history is taught in the United States and how many gaps there are, mm -hmm. and. I was wondering, you know, I know that in college you majored in history and African American studies, and I majored in history too. Um, but what I wonder, how was history of race, civil rights, Reconstruction, Jim Crow taught in in your schooling experience? What was that like? Yeah, this is interesting. So um, there were a, a, a bunch of us black writers. Where, well, one, I'm kind of old now, so I, I legit can't remember <laughs> back that far. Uh, I have not been in high school for a long time. Um, but we were having a discussion because the AP did a story about how um, close to a majority of, of white Americans think the Civil War was fought over states' rights and not slavery. And we were trying to remember, like, how were, what were we taught about the Civil War in high school? And um, I remember also being taught that. And I didn't grow up in the South. I grew up in the Midwest. And I think that was extremely common um, that I remember trying to actually discover, like, what was slavery about? I mean, what was the Civil War about? Because it, 
I knew like it ended slavery, so I'm like, if it wasn't about slavery, then why did it end slavery? Um, <laughs> but having like a really hard time, even re like reading texts, it, it was all so murky. Like none of the texts would just explicitly come out and say what, what slavery was about. So I'm pretty sure, I mean, you didn't, you didn't learn a lot of clearly about the role that black people have played in this country at all. Um, so, I mean, basically you learned about slavery because the Civil War ended it. That was it. And then you go to uh, Martin Luther King, right? And you see a couple pictures of like um, folks getting mustard dumped on their heads and you think that that was the extent of the civil rights movement. You're not learning about lynchings. You're not learning about um, the brutality of it. And then, you know, Dr. King gives his speech and even though he gets assassinated somehow, you know, our country was over racism. Um, and that was, that was literally, I mean, it. And I think that's largely how it is still taught today. I mean, in general, we know Americans don't know very much about history at all. <laughs> and I'm always astounded, like, when I, when I travel abroad or when I um, talk to people who are born in other countries, like, they actually know a lot about, like, the history of their country. And we know very, very little. Um, so. I think that's a problem, but I think particularly when it comes to race and understanding, you know, it shouldn't even be a debate about Confederate monuments. Like, it's actually ludicrous, but because we don't know this true history, then we're still, like, having these debates right now. And that's been extremely detrimental. It's why I spend so much time in the past in all of my stories. Usually about half of my stories are, are, take place in the past because I feel like I have to build up the, the understanding and the knowledge of this history before people can even understand why it's such a problem now. Um, black, the story of black people in this country is like the most inconvenient narrative, if, right? I mean, we just like, when you wanna learn, it's hard to like talk about our, how exceptional we are. We were not a democracy for millions of people in this country literally until 1968 when the last of the civil rights legislation was passed. Um, you, you can't talk about George Washington without having to talk about that he enslaved and run, ran a forced labor camp, right? Thomas Jefferson, like all of these presidents. Um, I remember I went to the, this, sorry, now, now I'm gonna like talk too much. I went to the Liberty Bell. Have you guys ever been to Liberty Bell? First of all, it's like this big. <laughs> I just went for the first time a couple years ago, and I couldn't believe how small it was. Like, in my head, it was like, <laughs> I was like, oh, this is the model? And they're like, no, that's it. Um, <laughs> but when you, when you go to the Liberty Bell, you now have to go through, like, this installation on slavery, which shocked me, but it also was, like, shocked the white folks in line. Some of them were, like, really <laughs> because they were in Philadelphia to, like, hear about the glory of, like, you know, America and, you know, the fact that, well, we enslaved like lots of people. It's kind of just inconvenient to the, the, the story they wanted to tell themselves. And, but there was no other way to get through there, which I actually thought was like really smart and lovely because you're coming to see this, this uh, you know, it's Liberty Bell. It's about liberty and you're having to like go through an installation about all of these people in this country who were deprived of liberty. Um, so I think it is hard. We, we don't want to deal with this history. That's why we have to say that slavery was about states' rights. And I'm always like, yeah, the state's right to own slaves. Like, that's what it was about. We have to tell ourselves that, um, you know, segregation has been illegal in this country since 1954. So 
people always say, like, why are you calling these schools segregated? No one's forcing black kids to go to segregated schools anymore. Um, we don't want to talk about that. Some places were still fighting desegregation orders until, like, the 1990s. Um, when I wrote about Michael Brown's school system, St. Louis was, like, fighting desegregation until the 1990s. So when you don't understand that history, then when you're trying to talk about remedies, when you're trying to talk about how do we make things more equal, people want to reject that because they're like, everyone has the same rights. Everyone, if you work hard, anyone can accomplish anything. And we know that's not true. But it is, it is our lack of um, ability to deal with our past. Um, to acknowledge the atrocities of what we've done and our ongoing privilege. I mean, this is the thing is, white Americans would never have to do anything discriminatory their whole lives, but they've already benefited from a system um, that has produced wealth, that has uh, privileged them in schools, that has privileged them in employment. And um, so it's not even necessarily about whether people have racial animus or not, but it is about if you want equality, in a country that was fundamentally unfair, you actually have to give something up. And that's where everyone's like, you know, it's all good to like believe in equality till someone's like, you gotta send your kid to that, that school over there. And then all of a sudden, most liberal folks don't really care much about equality at all. Yeah, that's, uh, and I, I, I struggle with this. I hear this a lot, uh, especially in, uh, you know, immigrant communities, uh, the response sometimes to me is, um, you know, well, I, I mean, I'm not even connected in any way to the South or slavery, and I don't understand why I have to be involved in these fights. And uh, and then, you know, and I talk to so many Americans who went to elite schools and private schools, and, you know, they don't really, you know, when I try to talk to them about systemic racism, you know, it's sort of glaze over, and I think there's just, it's, it's such a, uh, and, and me too as an immigrant, you know, who came here after high school, it took a long time to kind of realize like, it's such an in invisible machinery, such an invisible kind of hidden machinery that continues to push opportunity, wealth, safety uh, to white Americans. And without history, uh, without understanding that, uh, just I don't see how you can reduce it. And so most people sort of assume, well, it's just about, you know, your personal views and, um, and you know, I don't hold those views, so I'm fine. Why do I have to participate in these fights? And it's just really hard to see that invisible machinery and all the mechanisms. And so um, I really hope that everyone, for, for me personally, uh, it's been really helpful to read everything you wrote, everything that Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote. And um, you know, even though I went to high school in Latvia, I went to another high school, admission high school, and took some of the best history and English classes I've ever had, and that's where I learned uh, you know, everything I learned, uh, civil rights, uh, reconstruction, Jim Crow, uh, um, and uh, I'm very grateful for that, but I really hope it begins to change in this country. Um, Can I address the immigrant thing real quick? What's that? Could I address the immigrant? Yeah, please. So this is where history matters, right? So what, what well, one, um, I was tweeting about this this week too, because um, this we, we, we have to disabuse ourselves of this notion that slavery was a Southern institution. Slavery was an American institution. Slavery, one, the North, many particularly East Coast states were slave states um, initially, but also 
um, the, the entire economy of the United States was based on slavery. And this is part of, of um, our inability to do with our history is we have to like minimize the institutional slavery. But what we, what we actually know is that banking systems were set up around slavery, entire industry in the North, the Industrial Revolution is only possible because black folks are down south producing the cheapest cotton in the world. Um, and are able to send that up north. And so that is what actually fuels the Industrial Revolution. We know that um, the, the, the net worth of black bodies was worth more than every other American com commodity combined. So slavery was the fundamental driver of the American economy. And so all of the wealth that was produced in this country can tie, about two thirds of it can be tied back to um, slavery. I mean two-thirds of the millionaires in this country at the time were in the South. They were slaveholders. Uh, South Carolina fires the first shot in the Civil War because almost all of its wealth is tied to slavery. So I think when we, if you are in this country, it doesn't matter when you came here, whatever wealth this country has was literally produced on the backs of uh, African people. But the second thing is, um, our immigration policy until 1965 had quotas on uh, people of color. So countries, Asian countries, African countries, Caribbean countries, there were quotas on the number of people of color who could be admitted into this country as immigrants. The civil rights movement that black folks did is the reason why we can have so many immigrants uh, from Asia, from parts of Africa, and from the Caribbean. And so when folks come, um, and want to distance themselves from black Americans. I wish that they understood this history, that it was the literal uh, violent and deadly sacrifice of black people in this country who fought not just for their own freedom, but for the freedom of, of people of color all over the world to be able to come to what, um, as much as our democracy has been perfected, has been on the backs of black folks. So I think that history is also important to acknowledge. Yeah, and I, you know, Brown v. Board and Civil Rights Movement also uh, inspired uh, Asian American parents here in San Francisco in 1974 to win the lawsuit to provide extra resources for uh, students who are learning English. Until then, you know, the idea was like everyone gets the same funding, and they said no. Actually, if students have greater needs, that they need to get more money. And then a few years later, the same civil rights were uh, extended to 3.7 million students with disabilities and that again comes you know directly from the civil rights movement and and, and brown v board um i wanted to move and talk a little bit about your really powerful and moving personal essay about finding a school for for uh Nadja in uh in a segregated city and you know you it was such a beautiful essay and i think there was just such radical honesty about all the challenging and complex decisions that you, you know, went through uh, to decide where to send her to school. And, you know, as you say, you spent your career kind of documenting uh, about the harms of segregated schools, and yet, you know, when it came to your own daughter, you chose one. Um, and you do say that it's a high-functioning school, but it does have low test scores and it is segregated. So why did you make that decision? Yeah, so I should, I should first say that I don't think it is on black parents and particularly middle-class black parents to have to solve the problem of segregation. Um, that is fundamentally unfair. We, we didn't cause it. And for most of us, 
they're like myself and my husband, um, first generation college students, first generation to actually be middle class. The grip on the middle class for us is very tenuous. Um, what the data shows is that our children are actually the most likely to fall back down into poverty. So um, our ability to try to confer advantage on our children is um, much more critical because the only advantage we have is that, right? Mm -hmm. Black folks don't have wealth. Um, our family, my family certainly has no wealth, that sort of thing. But, so, so let me just state this explicitly. White folks have to fix segregation. Like, it is <laughs> white people's job to fix segregation. Um, black, <laughs> so to black folks, there would not be segregation, let's be clear. So, uh, <laughs> but with that said, so I've, I've been writing about school segregation since my very first job uh, as a journalist uh, in 2003. My very first job was to cover the Durham Public Schools um, in North Carolina. And it was a majority black district that had been devastated by white flight after desegregation. And it was right after No Child Left Behind. And I was watching, you know, as a brand new reporter, the devastating effects that No Child Left Behind was having on these schools where 99% of the kids were poor and 99% of the kids were black and Latino. Um, and they were somehow expected to get the exact same test scores as a school that had 10% poverty. Um, and so I, I've been, I was, writing about segregation right away. And I remember um, one of my colleagues who covered state education and lived in Durham and cared really, really about these kids. And then it was time for her kid to start school. And then she was like, I can't put my kid in my neighborhood school. Um, and for her, she said it was because the schools were poor. The children were poor in the school, which to me, one, somehow that doesn't really make it better, right? <laughs> I don't want my kid around poor kids, but we also know that uh, we use poor to talk about race, right? Um, and, I, and I would see that over and over in my career where you would see these scholars and you would see um, advocates and you would see journalists who were writing about inequality and writing about segregation. But then when it came time to make a decision for their own children, um, they used their advantage to put their children in heavily white and um, uh, low poverty schools. So I knew, all right, so let me, okay. <laughs> it's, it's complicated, right? So I, I was not a mother and it's very easy to judge parents when you don't have a kid. And um, it's very easy to say what you would do when you don't actually have to do it, which is why most people say they believe in integration and equality until they actually have to do it for their own child. Um, and then, I'm, so I have a child, and then I move to the most segregated school system in the country, and one that is so vastly unequal, um, where choosing to put your child in a segregated school, and, and I know better than most that a lot of times these schools are not providing quality education for children. And now I had a child. Um, but I actually knew I was going to put her in one of those schools because I think the thing that has always been the most difficult to me is, is as I write in the piece, yes, inequality is systemic. Yes, it happens up here. But it also happens with every individual decision that parents make. And um, unfortunately, I've, in the story I wrote about my daughter's school, parents were both fighting uh, systemic measures for equality, because for those of you who don't know the story, I decided to enroll my daughter in a segregated um, high poverty school that within a year, 
unbeknownst to me, becomes involved. I didn't know this in advance, was gonna become involved in an integration battle in uh, Brooklyn, which of course is like supposed to be the hipster haven of progressiveness. Um, <laughs> and it was a very ugly battle. And if, the, the funny thing was they were, my daughter's school, which was almost all black, 95% poverty, um, under-enrolled, as is often the case, and then a mile away was a white school um, in a majority black and Latino school system, a majority white, very low poverty school that was bursting at the seams. Because as you all know, in a majority black and Latino school district, wherever a handful of white folks go, all the white parents want to get their kids into that one school. So that school was bursting at the seams. The school system decides it needs to rezone um, and all hell breaks loose. Right, so all of these parents who are like proud, like public school parents, like love bragging about being in public schools. Well, that's because their public school essentially was a private school. Um, it didn't look like the other public schools. And they would tell you uh, they were saving $25,000 a year by putting their kid in this school because they can get a private you know, education for no cost and then they could just give that $25,000 to the PTA, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> which they did. I mean, literally, they could raise a million dollars on a good year. My daughter's PTA will raise $3,000. Yeah. So, but the rezoning, if those parents came, would have immediately turned our school into a half-white, um, half-impoverished school. And they fought that too, right? So um, parents, I don't even think I'm answering the question now, sorry. Uh, <laughs> so basically, out of a sense of morality, I decided that I was not going to use my privilege to get my daughter into, um, I mean, I, I'm like every parent. I, I, went, I had an integrated um, educational experience because my parents enrolled me in a busing program, a voluntary desegregation program, and I assumed my daughter would too. Um, but then I ended up in this terribly unequal school system um, and just couldn't see myself putting her in one of those handful of, of truly integrated, um, advantage schools. Now, um, in the piece I talk about, that was kind of news to my husband, who, uh, that was not his plan. <laughs> uh, I mean, in New York, like a lot of these segregated systems, when you're middle class, and it doesn't matter what race you are, like, the, like very early on, I mean, it, when my daughter was two, people were asking us, what are you gonna do about her school? You need to think about school. And I'm, I, and I'm just, I know enough to know that my daughter will be okay. Right, whatever she can't get in the school, I can give her. Um, but my husband was very worried about it, and he was a military brat, so he had a very unusual experience for a black child in this country. He never attended a segregated school because he attended base schools, and base schools are integrated. Um, but I knew that I needed to do this because I just felt it was right. And I felt I couldn't be writing all of these stories telling people that this was the right thing to do for children and then not do it myself. How has this experience been? Nadja has been there now for, uh, it's her fourth uh, school year. How, how has it been? What, were, what are some surprises? What were your fears and what are you finding? I mean, I think, so it always feels weird to say this. Um, I don't, so I don't care if she goes to Harvard. I mean, I just, I don't feel like the most important thing, I feel like we've gotten to the point where like, the most important thing that parents want is like, how can I get my child into like an Ivy League school? I actually don't care. Um, I want her to go to college. Um, 
I want her to do well. I, I want her to be happy. But to me, the most important thing, I, I, I wanted her to be a good person. I wanted her to understand. I mean, one of the most uncomfortable things about having the level of uh, financial privilege that I have is wanting her to understand how most people don't live like that and wanting her to understand that um, she's very lucky. And what motivated me my whole life was this fear of like struggle. I didn't want to struggle like my parents struggled. And I worry, will she have that same sense of fire because I can get her anything with the reason I can't buy her a yacht, but I can get her you know, anything in reason that she wants. And so I felt it was just really important that she not be separated from her community, um, that she be a good person. And um, again, knowing she'll be fine because she has college educated, middle-class parents um, who have access to a lot of things. Um, so it's been mostly really good. I think my fear were the same fear as any parent who puts their kid in a high poverty school, which is, is she going to be challenged? Um, is, you know, all of the things that I write about, lack of resources, um, not always the best quality teachers, um, all of those things I worried about. Um, and she's academically doing fine. Not everything has been easy. And I think I, I talk to parents a lot. There have been, <laughs> this is, I don't know if I should say this publicly. <laughs> Which every time you say you don't know if you should say it publicly, don't say that. <laughs> we know this as reporters, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, let's just say there, everything is not gone smoothly. Um, it, it, her teachers have been great. Uh, the school community has been great, but she is in a school with kids. Um, so her school, the tennis zone for her school is a housing project and that's it. And then there's a small number of um, middle class, almost all black parents who come in from outside of the, the district. Um, so these are not, this is not just a high poverty school. It's very deeply poor um, and concentrated poverty. Um, and so we have a lot of kids who have a lot of issues. And um, we've had to deal with some of those issues in the classroom. Um, but I think that is what I expected, right? I mean, if, if you go into these schools and they function just like the wealthy white schools that uh, we could put our kids in, segregation wouldn't be a problem. Um, we know that that concentration of poverty is not good. We know that... Um, that children who are living in stressed environments, and then you have classrooms full of children living in stressed environments is not a good thing. So there have been issues, but um, academically it's been great, socially it's been great, and overall, I kinda wanna tell a story, but I don't want the school to look bad. Um, all right, I'm gonna do it, I'm just gonna go for it. <laughs> I mean, it's so funny, like, journalists always want people to like, tell us everything and then we don't wanna like, share um, <laughs> So there was, a, there was an incident where there's a little boy in my daughter's class. His, he lives across the street in the projects. His mother was killed. Um, he's being raised by a stepmother, and it's just a lot of problems in the home. And um, so he acts out, understandably. I mean, I have a bad day at work, and my husband doesn't want me to talk to him. So uh, 
this, you know, he, he lives a hard life. And um, my daughter came home and she said that he had kicked her. And um, I don't, the white, I don't know if white people get raised the same way, but we were taught like you couldn't hit a, hit someone, but you could defend yourself, right? So same here. <laughs> I had taught my daughter never put your hands on anyone, never hit anyone. And so when he kicked her and she comes home and I'm like, well, was a teacher there? She was like, no. And I was like, you know, then I have to give her the talk that you don't have to let anyone hit you. Um, and we talked about it and I was telling her like, you know, it's not okay for him to ever put his hands on you, but you have to understand that he's going through a lot and he's acting out because of the things that he's going through. And my daughter sat there, we talked about it, and then she said, I wanna give him something. And I was like, well, what do you wanna give him? And she was like, he loves teddy bears, and he doesn't have one, and I wanna give him one of my teddy bears. So, um, <laughs> I get, I get, it was a proud parenting moment, I'm not gonna lie. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so she went upstairs, and she picks out a teddy bear, and she takes it to him to school the next day. And she said, mom, he was so happy when I gave him that teddy bear. Um, and, I, and I thought, that's like, that's why she's there. Because. So beautiful. She, just like her understanding of, of the world and her compassion for other children who aren't as lucky as her, that's what's important. If she goes to Harvard, great. If she doesn't, I don't care. But. I'm hoping that my daughter will be a good person who will then go out into the world and try to make the world a better place because I haven't put her in a cocoon, because I haven't spent you know, my days trying to drill into her. You have to like suck every advantage that you can um, because that's the problem with the advantage. Somebody has to lose. If, if, you, know, you can't say you want equality, but then advantage for your own child, like those two things are in contradiction to each other. And I, I think it is a very hard thing for parents to say, I'm not gonna do everything I can to advantage my child. It does feel unnatural, but I feel like she's getting a, a distinct advantage that a lot of parents don't recognize. And I think, I wish more of us would understand because in truth, um, those kids are smart. Those kids are resilient. They have to work harder than she does. Um, she learns a lot from them. And I think the way that we talk about segregation integration is as if only privileged kids are, are giving anything and that the other kids have nothing to offer. And every day in the classroom, I see and my daughter sees that they have just as much to offer. And in some ways, they have more. I just want to, I, I did want to say one thing about kicking and because this is like the most common, you know, I've done every book reading uh, that I've done for Mission High School book around the city, the, 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 the most common question is safety, fights, yeah. and uh, emotional problems. And, and I'm so grateful because at this point, uh, other uh, white parents are in the audience and they're like, I'm right here, let me tell you some stories. And, and, I, and I hear these stories and, um, and I actually, I just recently met a, a parent whom I really admire, um, Sarah Desaran. She, uh, um, you know, she is that parent that absolutely can afford to send her child to a private school, but opted in for uh, a public school and, and Mission High School specifically because she felt like her son will gain so much from uh, being in that particular school. And um, 
you know, and I asked her, like, well, how has it been? And, you know, what's the most common question parents ask you? And she's like, the safety thing. I'm like, well, what do you tell them? She said, well, uh, my other kid is in a predominantly white school, low poverty. There's way more fighting there. <laughs> like, way more fighting there. And the girls are so mean. So it's like, it does, it's like, it's not like those things, you know, they happen in all schools. Absolutely. Yeah. And, it, and I mean, let me tell you, I, I was terrorized in these white schools. So, <laughs> I mean, I, it wasn't a physical, but it was certainly a lot of psychological warfare that happened in those schools. Um, and what's so amazing is like people don't like these children are, are very disciplined. Their parents don't play about how you respect adults. You know, I mean, the few white kids in the school, a lot of times the black parents are looking like, wow, you're just gonna let your kid run around and talk crazy to, you know. But it is, it is that idea of fear, that is the most common thing that I hear. Um, and, and when the little boy kicked my daughter, I asked her, I was like, are you afraid of him? Are you afraid? Because no parent wants to feel like your child is afraid. And she said no. Um, and after she came in and she gave him the bear, no, he's nothing, he's never touched her mm -hmm. again. He was having a moment, um, but he wasn't a bully and she wasn't afraid and she was safe. I remember when I, when I wrote the piece, I got all these emails from parents who were like, how dare you put your child in an unsafe school? Never once in the piece, as a matter of fact, I say this school is a very safe school. I never once mentioned safety, but it's an automatic assumption that if it is a black school um, and then a poor black school that, um, these kids, and, and keep in mind, my daughter's in pre-K. We're talking about, <laughs> we're talking about babies. Um, but then I, I think we should always remember the, the book that I'm writing, The Problem We All Live With, the title of that book comes from uh, the Norman Rockwell painting of Ruby Bridges. And this is a five-year-old who has to be escorted by U.S. Marshals into a white school and then spends the first semester in a classroom by herself with one teacher because every white parent pulled their child out of that school. So we kind of laugh, but this fear of black children begins at a very young age. And this belief that our children are not really children like other children um, begins at a very young age. And I think that is the biggest thing that we're up against. When people ask why are schools segregated, I think I say it's because people are afraid to put their kids in school with black children. Like, that's it. Fundamentally, that, that is it. And Latinos, to a lesser extent, um, but that, that is the crux of it. And until we get over that, we're actually never going to solve the problem. It's now time to turn to our audience. Um, I'm sort of thinking about the problem we all live with podcasts and particularly that town hall and wondering if you can point to any specific like things tangible or intangible, whether it's mindsets or culture that have to be in place in order for integration to be implemented well. Hmm. Uh, oh man. Um, so I should just say I'm the least uh, optimistic person on this issue that you will meet. Um, I don't think we're going to solve it. And I, I, yeah, so the mind state that, that is necessary is do you truly believe that black children are equal to your own? Truly believe that. And I say that because I, we say we believe that, but then, so for instance, in, in New York City, there was a teacher or a principal who decided she was going to try to equalize talented and gifted um, because in many, many places, as you know, talented and gifted, even in an all-black school, will be all-white. That that is the way that you uh, create segregation in integrated schools. 
And so she had placed, it was a majority black and Latino school, and she ensured that a majority of the kids in Talented and Gifted were black and Latino. And when white parents would tour that school, they would say, that can't possibly be Talented and Gifted. Now, I think most of you may have a similar reaction, if we're honest. I think, I think, I think that many white Americans think that they are exceptional black people who are very smart and very successful, but they are not representative. And that most white Americans are afraid of putting their kids in a school and a classroom that is majority black. So until we can address that, we'll never have integration. Because even in integration buildings, so we're in San Francisco, there's a great deal of tracking even in the integrated schools here. I know Berkeley, um, which of course is like proudly integrated, but the tracking that occurs in Berkeley High School uh, is immense, right? So if we can't deal with that issue, we're never gonna have integration. How do we deal with that though? I don't know, I mean, revolution, start from scratch, I don't know. I don't know, and I, I'm only half joking. Um, I, I say that I write about uh, race in America from 1619. And that's because that's the first year that Africans were brought in this country to be uh, enslaved. We land on Jamestown in 1615 or 14, right? So five years after the English have landed in this country, we have already determined that black people are gonna be brought here and enslaved in the bottom of racial caste. That means it is not only foundational to our country, this is 140 years before we become a country, it is in our DNA. How do we rid ourselves of something that is in our DNA? How many of you are comfortable, would be comfortable enrolling your children in a school that was 95% black? If you're not comfortable with that, then you have to ask yourself why. And if you're not comfortable with that, then you understand that we'll never solve the issue of segregation. So San Francisco is a history of segregated schools and also of a tiny number of schools kind of being gentrified by white families who kind of Columbus really you know, good schools that are actually serving low-income kids and are in danger of um, being closed. And then in, the gen in a sort of school generation of seven years, remake that school to the point that it's one of the whitest schools in the city and is no longer serving kids of color. So as obviously we need kind of systemic solutions, but as a white person who's one of 3% of white families in my school and who's also thinking about those systemic sol solutions, how do we avoid remaking integrated schools to the point that they're damaging families like we've heard tonight. Absolutely. Uh, here's the thing. Segregation was not accidental nor incidental. It was planned. It was strategized. There were lots of resources put into it. Integration has to be done the same way. We have to think about it. We have to plan for it. We have to strategize around it. We have to put resources into it. So the way that integration tends to happen now is just that way. White parents pick a school, then other white parents follow. But it's actually not part of a larger strategy in the district to integrate schools. So because of that, those schools very quickly flip. You need a system-wide, you need people at the system-wide level who are thinking about integrating not just a handful of schools, but all of the schools. Um, the problem is parents fight this. Right? That's the problem. I mean, uh, school administrators know that integration is good for kids. The reason they're not pushing it is because politically it's bad for them. So until you have enough white people in a community who are saying, as a system, this is our value and this is what we're going to do, it's not going to happen. And what will happen is what will likely happen at the school your kid is at. Uh, what we're worried is going to happen at the school our kid is at, um, which is that the school is going to flip. 
And almost always, these are schools that the only reason that white parents go into them is because they're serving those kids well, they're high functioning. White parents are not going into like crappy segregated schools. They're going into the segregated schools that are working. And then, so this handful of high quality segregated schools get lost to that community too, which is very problematic. So I think that the solution cannot be at an individual school. The solution has to be system-wide. Um, but there are some things that can be done um, um, controlled choice is one thing that they try to use in New York, which is where you set aside a certain number of seats. Um, usually they do for low-income kids because they're afraid of the Supreme Court if they use race um, um, in order to keep a school from flipping all of the way. But again, I think these issues are not, these are not individual issues. These are systemic issues and they require systemic solutions. But where's the groundswell? And I think this is getting back to the Charlottesville thing, mm -hmm. right? It's like, Where's the groundswell of support around integration? Where are all the parents and people who will run downtown and, and march against white supremacy while upholding white supremacy in their school district every day? If you could see that level of support, then I promise you school leaders would react and respond to that. They're responding to what they think white parents want and what white parents do want, which is a system that continues to privilege their children. Um, Nicole, you might know this. This is a last question, and it's an informed tradition that you might have heard about, but we ask all of our speakers to give us their 60-second idea for changing the world. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. Uh, <laughs> can I have 60 seconds to think about it? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> to change the world. You know, just don't think we're going to change. So that's so hard. Um, I think if, if each one of us decided to give up one advantage for the good of our community, that could make a huge difference. That would be huge. So, yeah. But my real 60-second idea is like actually like live your own values. Actually live your values. And it's not easy, um, but if you really believe in equality, that's what you have to do. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you for modeling that for all of us. <laughs> and thank you for traveling. Thank you for joining us for another edition of Week to Week from the Commonwealth Club, airing on the Michelle Miao Show on the Progressive Voices Network. I'm John Zipperer, and you can also hear me Tuesdays when I co-host Michelle Miao's program with her. Find out more about the club at commonwealthclub.org. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, Leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. 
and that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face with today's thought leaders. Thanks so much for tuning in today. For more on us and other programs or podcasts you might have missed, you can head to michellemeow.com.